Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to week four of the CSF Curriculum Podcast. I'm Brian Marshall here with you. And this week, we've got our very good friend, Dylan Matthews. And we are going to be looking at Matthew 28, just five short verses, verses 16 through 20. And even though these are simply five verses, kind of a pretty narrow selection of Scripture, I think I would argue that these five verses actually help unpack a a much wider section of Scripture. And so let's dive in there, Dylan. How do you think that these five verses help us actually see a a big swath of Scripture and the story in which we live? Yeah, so where we find ourselves in the story, if we missed what was going on before this point, I think you could walk away kind of confused. I mean, if you read the Great Commission without knowing who Jesus is, what people he comes from, where we fall in the story. It's almost like if you're reading a Harry Potter book, you're reading the very end of the story of Harry Potter, and Harry wakes up and is like, hey, Voldemort's defeated. Everyone go follow me. We're going to go undo all of this stuff. You wouldn't go, oh yeah, that's awesome. You would say, wait a second. Who is this guy? Why is he telling me to do something? What has he done? Who's Voldemort? What's what's going on in this story? And so, you would have missed all of the longing and the drama and the 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 fighting and all this all of this conflict and resolution that would have gone on and put you in the story and had you feel what was going on and if you experienced that then the end of the story would have made more sense the only thing about the great commission is it's not an end it's a launching point into a new chapter and so for us we want to be able to look at Matthew and actually understand what is going on in the book because you know the bible isn't really a single book in the way mm-hmm. that we think about maybe mm-hmm. a novel or Um, you know, a nonfiction book. It's really more of a library. Mm. And so when we read Matthew, we got to know that he's an author. Yes, this is God's word. It's divinely inspired, but at the same time, it's written by a guy. And so he's got an audience in mind. He's got a story that he wants to tell. He's got themes that he wants to say. And so one of those themes is who is this Jesus guy? Where does he come from? And so actually, if you want to understand Matthew 28, I think you got to key in to Matthew 1. There's something important going on there. What, what do you see in Matthew 1? I know for me, there's a, a few things that stand out to me, and maybe uh, maybe you'll give me a chance to talk about those. But for you, I'll, I'll let you go first. What, what do you see in Matthew 1 that you think kind of ties in here uh, to help us see Matthew 28 in a, in a better way? Yeah, like any, like any really intelligent writer, someone's going to start a story with the idea of the end in mind. And so Matthew starts a story, and it seems kind of weird. It seems like kind of the, you would, if you looked at it really quick, you'd say, this is the most boring intro to a gospel account that I've ever seen. It's just a genealogy. It's this mm-hmm. guy had this guy had this guy and she was the son of him. And how, did, and then we end up with Jesus. That's boring. Why don't we start with something more exciting? But actually there's something really cool going on. And it's this culmination of saying the story of the old Testament, the story of the people of God is culminated and fulfilled in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And he's the Messiah. And so if you don't know what the Messiah is, essentially he's the long awaited hero of the Jewish people. And so what Matthew is saying is all of those books that we know as Jewish people, as a Jewish audience are like prophesying about Jesus coming. And so point one of Matthew one is this guy that I'm about to tell you about is the Messiah. It's groundbreaking. Yeah. Even, even the way the church decided to put the, the books of the Bible in order, you know, I don't know if there's any official 
know, the Holy Spirit made them do it in a particular order. But I think it's interesting because they they put Matthew right there first, laid up next against if you're flipping through a Bible, you're coming from the Old Testament, and and now you're you you jump right into Matthew there first because uh, of the Gospels. He seems to be the most concerned with showing that Jesus is a part of this lineage. Jesus is a part of what God was doing through Israel, and now he's doing a very it's a, in some ways it's a new thing. In some ways it's a very old thing that he's doing. You know, one of the things I love, even as you mentioned, we talked about the genealogy in Matthew one here. I even love that, uh, that there's different parts of that genealogy. Again, we look at it and we think oh, it's just a list of names, but don't call it a list because there's so much more in there than just a list of names. In fact, that one of the names I even love, there's Tamar. Uh, Tamar is in uh, Matthew 1, 3, and Tamar was uh, probably, a, she was not a Jew. She was a, probably a Canaanite woman. And you see, even from the very beginning, there's lots of pieces throughout Matthew of this, of that God from the very beginning was including, uh, the he was including the Gentiles, even in the heart of Jesus. I mean, this is genealogy. These are his ancestors. And so when we get to Matthew 28, we see that, wait a minute, God's had in mind all along that this was going to be wider than a story simply for the Jewish people people. Yeah, absolutely. The, the Great Commission that we're reading is was not born in a vacuum, and, and it came out of uh, a, a really important story that God was writing. And so, I, th- I think that's really crucial to understand. Jesus is, was not born out of a vacuum. He was born out of a lineage of God's story. Um, and so, that's point one, is Jesus is the culmination, the fulfillment, and the launching out of what God has been doing through this people uh, called Israel. And the second point in Matthew 1 that I think is really important to get Matthew 28 is that the second half of Matthew 1 is about the birth of Jesus. And it gives us kind of all of these little snippets about, here's what some the Lord said to Joseph and to Mary. But it all says, all of this is to fulfill the prophecy uh, given in, in the Old Testament about him being named Emmanuel, God with us. And mm-hmm. so you see this two-pronged kind of story starting in Matthew 1 of, this is the Messiah promised from long ago, and he'll be called God with us. And mm-hmm. so if we look at the Great Commission, you see the same thing. He says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. I am the Messiah. Jesus has just risen from the dead, which I would say is pretty groundbreaking, earth shattering. I don't know many people who that's Mm -hmm. happened to. And that's kind of like God's stamp of approval saying, yes, this is my guy. This is the Messiah. He's the one that I promised. He's got all the authority. But he also ends his commission with, I will be with you always to the Mm -hmm. very end of the age. Mm -hmm. And so you see Mm -hmm. this Messiah who's going to be with us. Start in Matthew 1, culminate Matthew 28, and actually launch us into the new chapter. Yeah, the, the Emmanuel, God with us, but it's also the God who will always be with us. Yeah. It's not just a uh, it's not just a promise for the, the gospel writers, because I think a lot of times we look and we go, uh, well, okay, that's great. You all had Jesus with you then. But what he says to us is actually, in some ways, we have a more intimate relationship with Jesus than they did, because we have the indwelling Christ. You know, we have the the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and so that Jesus is is always always with us. Yeah, I think that's really important, and and we even see we get to since we know the part of the story, hindsight is twenty twenty. We know that we get the Spirit later on that he promises the Spirit, and you see that in other gospel accounts that he says, "I'm going to send my Spirit to be with you afterwards," and that's such an important part of the relationship we get to be with Jesus and on mission with him. Yeah, I think one one last thing I'd say in pointing out, pointing back to the beginning, and Matthew has these beautiful bookends. I mean, we, mm-hmm. we've been talking about here chapter one, and then moving out into chapter 20. Even in chapter two, you see what, what happens. People come and worship the baby Jesus. What happens here as Jesus closes the book? 
they're worshiping Jesus. It's these, you know, it starts with worshiping Jesus. It ends with worshiping Jesus, and in some ways, is a is a beautiful bookend to what we want our lives to be about too. As we yeah. as we want our lives to reflect this story and to be in the story that we start our lives and our lives really begin. I mean, I think about my life before Christ, and I think, gosh, it really began mm-hmm. in, in a really good way uh, once I started worshiping Jesus. And, and I hope that's the end of my life is that I still worship Jesus. Yeah, I think that's a great point to see that that this commission if we just think of it as you know delegating a task from Jesus we're missing something that really we're saying Jesus you're worth it you're worth being on mission worship giving the worth to something uh that Jesus you're worth my life you're worth following there seems to be a lot of emphasis and a lot of focus on getting born as a Christian. Hey, did, did you get baptized? And did you start your life in Christ? And and while absolutely, of course, you you, you know, that's how you start. You start by being born. But it seems to me this passage in particular, while it's encouraging going out and helping people be born into Christ, it's also about helping people grow up into Christ. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great point. And one of my favorite authors, Christian author, he's a teacher at Northern Theological Seminary. He's named Scott McKnight. And he says, sometimes we can miss it when we try to make decisions rather than disciples. We can try mm. to get people into deciding mm. for Christ, but not actually following Christ and being a disciple. And so you see in the Great Commission that we're not just given a mission, that disciples don't just have a mission, but disciples are the mission of what mm-hmm. Jesus wants to do. He mm-hmm. doesn't want to just create this people who are out being, you know, the greatest social justice warriors and freedom fighters. And all of those are good things. But the first mission is to be a disciple and to make disciples is what Jesus is getting at. Yeah. And those two things, I, I do think they they interweave. I mean, as we, as we go out and make disciples of others and we teach, you know, we teach the things of Jesus and certainly we, we live it out, but we also, we also speak it out. Uh, as we do that, we ourselves become a disciple uh, further. You know, it's just this cyclical process. You know, I, I think some people think, well, once I get to be the perfect disciple, then I'll go out and start making disciples. And that isn't how Jesus worked with his own disciples. It's certainly not how he, he works with us. I mean, I think one of the things that's really interesting in the text here, kind of diving down a little bit into the Greek text, is that you know the main verb here, the main verb here is to is to you know make disciples of the nations. That making disciples is the main verb present. And so in the Greek text, you, you know, you've got these other kind of participles. You've got to go, baptize, teach, that that we look at in English and we go, well, okay, that's that's a lot of verbs. But in the Greek text, that they're they're actually participles. And what participles are, participles are kind of like verbal adjectives. So they modify in the same way an adjective modifies a noun and kind of says something particular about the noun, but the noun's kind of central. Then the, the same thing here with a participle, these Greek participles, go, baptize, teach. They're participles. They modify making disciples. So what what the if you look at the Greek text there, the main point, the center point is to make disciples. And how do you do that? Well, you need to go, you need to baptize, you need to teach. But the central thing that we're doing, all those things point to one thing, and that's making disciples. Yeah, I think that's I think that's so good. And even diving further into kind of the the language is when we read go, uh, a lot of Bible teachers have gone back and forth saying, is Jesus saying to go out into the world and to Mm -hmm. go to different nations? And even the word nations here doesn't just mean you know, to a specific country, it's ta ethne, it's ethnic groups, it's Mm -hmm. people groups. Mm -hmm. So it's not just go to Belgium or go to Tanzania or Bangladesh, it's go and be with a specific people group. Mm -hmm. And so as you, as you see go, a lot of people argue, is it go to a place or is it as you're going about your life? And I think the best answer is yes, it's Mm -hmm. both. Mm -hmm. So some of us may be called to go to another 
country or to go to another people group, uh, we might be called to go to El Salvador. Man, that'd be amazing. But some of us may be called to go to Chem 105. Mm-hmm. And maybe an unreached people group is a group of, uh, you know, biology majors on campus. And that is who you're called to reach and to make disciples from. And, you know, it's interesting. Following the Great Commission doesn't mean that you walk up to someone awkwardly and go, do you know where you're, where you're going when you die? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not this awkward, you know, trying to just mm-hmm. be an evangelist all mm-hmm. the time, making mm-hmm. people saving souls. Mm-hmm. It's not a competition. It's actually, I'm going to go be a Jesus follower in my context. I'm going to live the life. I'm going to follow Jesus. And as people are around me, they're going to they're gonna notice that there's something different about me. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a part of a different kingdom. And my job is to live in the kingdom and invite people into the kingdom. Yeah. Although the one little asterisk I'd want to put on that is that, you know, one of the things we say about CSF a lot of times, you know, I don't know if we have a formal mission statement or not, but it would be something like this I've said over the years to live out and spell out the life of Jesus to the people of UK. So, because we want to make disciples here. And so we live out and we spell out. And so I, I think you're right, Dylan, that we want to live out our faith so that people go, I was just in a meeting the other day and it was, I knew it was going to be a setting where probably sharing my faith in an overt way wasn't going to be, wasn't going to be, uh, probably part of the conversation. And so I prayed. I said, Lord, just in this in this meeting with this person, help my faith to just be on display by the way I live, the kindness. And, and even it was interesting, even a comment they made at the end of, and it wasn't just myself, there were three of us uh, present, three Christians present in this meeting. And they and, and they said, man, I, I did not know what to expect today. But you could tell there was a sense of like, they they sensed something different. But also we need to, to spell out, Jesus gives us a command here to teach. And for a lot of us, that freaks us out. We think we have to stand up in front and give lectures and that's sort of thing. And it's not that, but we do need to figure out those times and places where we do need to use our words. Jesus, if anyone could have just lived it out, Jesus could have, but, but, he used words. And if our our Lord or the one that we're you know, discipling under him, if he used words, we're probably going to have to. And again, uh, it doesn't mean you have to give up and give a talk in front of 100 people. It doesn't mean you do it in every single setting, but there are going to be settings in which to, to teach people about Jesus, you have to use words. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think what you're getting at kind of reminds me of a story uh, from my own life where I was found myself uh, my fifth year, my second senior year of college. I was yes. working at Old Navy. And uh, yeah, I squeezed four years into five years. Um, and uh, I was working at Old Navy and, you know, it wasn't the best job in the world. Uh, it wasn't um, maybe my dream job or where I saw myself I, being for a long time. I spent my time in retail as well. A little, little podcast uh, fact here. So if you're listening, I actually used to work at Abercrombie & Fitch. So wow. It, hey, you know, welcome it, to another podcast it, called Talking Retail with that, me and Brian. That's right. Yeah. So anyway, that, that was before you had to like take your shirt off in job interviews or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Abercrombie's <laughs> a little bit of a, of a different, a different store back then. I, I'm just kidding. I don't know if they do that or not, but a uh, little bit, a little bit different. Anyway, yeah, back so on, back on point. Here. Working at Old Navy and it's not my dream job. And, uh, you know, it, I found it hard to be positive all the time, but I really did want to make the best of the experience. Um, and, you know, working with people, not everyone felt the same way. And so I remember there's a girl uh, who I was friends with uh, that I worked with and she just had a hard time. Uh, she was having a hard time in life and um, found it hard to really come into work and be joyful and fun and just kind of was in a bad mood pretty consistently. And I remember one time she pulled me aside and said, man, how are you just able to be so joyful um, and not let this job get you down? And I had an opportunity to talk about my discipleship with Jesus, that this job didn't define my attitude, um, that I had something greater um, in my life that actually made made me feel secure, and that this 
the storms of this job didn't throw me around or whatever. You know, the the triviality of folding shirts or something that didn't just, just didn't get to me. And I had this opportunity to really share about my life with Jesus with her. And all I said was, oh, I just don't want it to, you know, I don't want it to get to me. And I walked away and I missed it. I missed the opportunity to share about my discipleship with Jesus. And so I think you're so right. I think it can't just be, you know, hoping that people figure out the cues from the way that we live our life. I really do think we need to spell out, like you said, this is from my life with Jesus. This is from me living in his kingdom, not my own. Yeah, I think one of the furthest missionary journeys that we that we sometimes ever take. I think we think about getting on a plane, going you know thousands of miles across the the globe, and and doing that. And that that is a missionary journey that that some people are called to do, but probably more people are actually called to stay rather than go. I mean, the the go for them is to go across a room to look at a coworker, to look at a classmate, to look at uh, someone in your sorority, fraternity, wh- whatever it is, and to say, hey, I think God's calling me to talk to them. And that can be super intimidating because we feel like we've got something that there, there's our reputations. Or, you know, we go across the world. It's like, well, nobody knows me. I can just kind of do this thing. And if I embarrass myself a little bit because, you know, someone doesn't want to accept Jesus and I feel some personal affront at that, then, uh, you know, what, what's lost? But I think, you know, that's in part why it can be hard for us to think, gosh, man, what if they what if they don't want me to talk to them about Jesus? But Jesus calls us to go. And and sometimes again, I think that that most important going is just to look across the room. I do that at CSF sometimes where I just pray and say, hey God, uh, give me somebody to talk to tonight. Bring someone across my path. Just give me a sensitive heart to go, who do I need to talk with? And how can I how can I not just let that conversation be about basketball or about, you know, the last movie we saw or wh- whatever, but but to say not that those things are wrong, but say, hey, how can I God how can I be alive to what the conversation you want to have here? Because I, I want to see disciples made. You know, speaking of disciples and that that word, even that 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 word can feel kind of I don't know awkward. I, I don't want to say flat because it is the biblical word, and I want to keep using biblical words. God gave us these words for a reason, um, but. But I think a lot of times in our day and age that that word discipleship has just sometimes we can hear it and it's like what what does that even mean? I've heard it so many times. It's like a new word you hear it and you go what does it mean? But then there's the other end of the spectrum. You hear a word so many times and you lose its meaning. When you think about that word discipleship, what does it mean to you? The connotation that we get from disciple is it just is another word for Christian. Um, and in one sense, that's true. It really, you know, it really does mean a follower of Jesus. But I think the the word for disciple is much more like apprentice. And so if you learn, if you apprentice from someone, you have to do some specific things in order to learn to be like them. So if you're an apprentice to a master shoemaker, you spend time with them and you watch what they do and you learn from them. And then you begin to try things out and you begin to do certain little tasks like what they do. You actually learn to sharpen the tools in your tool belt and learn oh, I can be like my master shoemaker. And so when we're an apprentice to Jesus, what we do is, I love actually a church that I love out of Portland, Bridgetown Church. They have basically a three-part phrase on discipleship, on apprenticeship to Jesus. And it's be with Jesus, be like Jesus, Mm -hmm. do what Jesus did. And Mm -hmm. I think that lays out the apprenticeship model, be with Jesus, get kind of time with him, just time in your heart, learn to have your apprenticeship come from the inside out, be like him. Don't just like learn to do the same tasks, but actually learn to do the tasks the way he would do them. And then you can walk into 
the ways Jesus lives. Yeah, you think about any kind of skilled position. Uh, I know we've got a plumber and and he uh, that we use now, and we used to have, his dad used to be our plumber, but he just would come around. He'd follow his dad around and and uh, look how to unclog pipes and how to hook things up and, and all that. And now, uh, usually his dad doesn't come out anymore. The son does because the son has spent so much time with his dad that now he knows how to do this. And it's the same thing with Jesus. I mean, we spend, we spend that time around him so that eventually, uh, you know, it's, you can't tell the difference. I, I can't tell the difference when, when, whether if I, we call and we're not here at the house, we leave a key outside. I, I can't tell the difference if the son or the dad was here because, because he has, he has apprenticed under his dad in such a way that, uh, that they essentially do the same, the same work. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think even as we, you know, for this podcast being predominantly for in-group leaders, but even for, you know, if students want to listen to it, I think it's awesome. Uh, you know, I, I think it's a little bit arrogant to think we can go out and live the missionary discipleship life with Jesus without spending time with him. I think that's a little bit arrogant to think, oh, I can do this on my own power without spending time with him, without receiving from him and actually having something to share. Yeah, I do want to hit here a little bit. Uh, you know, we talked earlier about these uh, these participle verbs. You know, they modify uh, verbs like go and baptize and teach. And we've hit go a little bit, but I'd like to hit a little bit more on baptize and teach and how they play a role in making disciples. You know, as, as I look at these words and I think about if I had to... I don't know, oversimplify it, but it's, it's, I think it's at least hopefully in so, to some degree helpful that when I think of baptize, I mean, baptize is essentially what you're doing is you are identifying with this Messiah. You are identifying as Jesus as Lord. You're saying, hey, uh, I, I want my name attached to his name. I want my life attached to his life. And so you, you make that decision and you're, you're baptized. But then the other part of that, so if baptism is about identification and a new identification, a new identity for you, then teaching is how does that identification play out? How does it play out in, you know, my setting as a, for me, as a husband, as a father, as a dad, uh, I, I wasn't those things. I wasn't a husband, uh, a father, you know, when I, when I first came to Jesus, but my, my discipleship under Jesus still continues to grow. I still need to be taught. I need others to teach me. I need to, uh, to study for myself to, to try to learn, Jesus, what it, what are you shaping in me? And so while baptism can be a momentary uh, beginning of our identity and a lifelong identity process, the, the real process gets played out, I think, under the teaching rubric of where, how does my identity play out in the thousands and millions of different settings in which I find myself? Yeah, I forget, I forget who told me this, or, or maybe I heard it in a sermon, but you know, baptism is this identification, this step into the family of God. And I love the New Testament um, analogy to the gospel being like adoption and stepping into the family of God. And one of the things that I, I thought was so interesting is when a child is adopted, they're in a new family, but they also are like living in a new house. And so they got to learn what their house is like. They got to learn which one's the ice cube dispenser and which one is the water dispenser. They don't know. This is totally new to them. Mm -hmm. And so with teaching, not only is baptism welcoming you into the family, you're adopted in. But then you got to learn how to live in the house. You can't just wake up That's one great. day and say, oh, man, okay, I know, I know how to be in this house. I know how to live in this family with, without question. You know, we're hitting some on the personal notes of this, of us learning in a personal way. But I think, and that's that's obviously important, but I also want to hit on a more global kind of cosmic scale, if you will, here. Because, you know, what what's happening here? I mean, there was an earthquake that, that gets mentioned in, in Matthew 28, and it's, in, and it's kind of 
you know, you think, well, it's just incidental. Matthew's reporting something. But what, what it's also signifying is this is earth shaking. What's happening here when Jesus dies on the cross, he comes back. This is earth shaking. And, and I love the way that C.S. Lewis describes this in, in his uh, book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And this is Aslan, that kind of Christ-like uh, lion figure speaking. And the kids can't figure out, this is Aslan's resurrection scene. And so kind of like the disciples here, this is the first time they're encountering Jesus in Matthew 28 here after his resurrection. This is the first time the kids encounter Aslan after his resurrection. And they say, you know, Susan, one of the girls says, what does it all mean? And this is what Aslan says to her. She says, it means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there's a magic deeper still she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery, no sin, was killed in a traitor's stead, the table, the table of the law, would crack and death itself would start working backward. And I love that line. It's one of my maybe favorite sentences in all of C.S. Lewis, that death itself would start working backward. And that is what we're talking about. That's what Jesus is telling us when he says, hey, go and make disciples. Go and take my kingdom and let it spread because this is the way life is meant to be lived. The death and decay and destruction we see around us, Jesus is saying, I want, it stops here. I want life to come in. That death, the the tide of death, it's not going to keep eating more and more and more until eventually just the whole world's consumed, the whole cosmos consumed. It just, you know, we all go back into the 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 nothingness uh, before it all began. That Jesus is saying, no, death will start to recede and life will start to come, which uh, which I, I just love, love, love that imagery. Yeah, I think that's really good. And even in the, the Chronicles of Narnia, Narnia story, the moment where Aslan kind of goes through Narnia again and brings life back to the area, the snow melts away, the flowers start to bloom again. I think that's a cool picture of you know, we're not just kind of shielding ourselves from the darkness, waiting around till Jesus comes back. Mm-hmm. We're actually an invasion force of light and mm-hmm. goodness and beauty going out into the world and saying, there's something better. There's something better. And you can you can be a part of the family of God where something better is real. Yeah, I love that imagery that we're an invasion force. I think sometimes at the church, we, we think, oh, we've got to sit back and hopefully try to, you know, make it until Jesus comes back or make it till we die or whatever. And But we are an invasion force and not in a, not in a, a conquering forceful way, but an invasion force of love of saying, Hey, we are here to bring aid. We are here to bring hope. We are here to bring love. And we are an invasion force of that. Not a, not an army that conquers people with the sword, but that, that an army that conquers people with, with love. I mean, of course, you know, you can't force someone into this, but that's the type of invasion force. I love that imagery. And I love that, you know, so much of, you know, we think of invasion force in the world. I mean, the, the social justice warriors, that kind of invasion force of, Hey, we want to see this and that social cause come to pass. And, and we're fighting for this. And though there is, there's, some deep right instincts in that. There's some variety of ways in which that gets off kilter. And one of the ways here that that I'd, I'd want to make sure that we understand is Jesus tells them here, obey everything I've commanded you everything. And yes, there are outward things and, and causes that, that we should be concerned about. But, you know, I know sex trafficking is, is a huge issue in our world and so many people rightly and thankfully fight for that. But here's the thing is, unless we take Jesus's teachings about the inwardness of our heart and lust and, and those kinds of things, we can do, we can make all the laws, we can have all the sex trafficking rescues and the what, again, that is good stuff. But until we say, Jesus, I'm willing to let you be Lord of my life and let you uh, change my heart and let you change of my inward dispositions, because then uh, the, the thing that drives the, the sex trafficking industry is, is lust and, and the inward human heart and letting Jesus say, hey, Jesus, I'm going to let you invade my life and let you take over. But I think a lot of times we look at Jesus and we go, Jesus, you're not strong enough. 
you, you can't do that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, my pastor actually has this great phrase where he just says, the change that we want to see in the world is found in the kingdom of God alone. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so if we want to see change happen, we need to surrender to the, the Messiah, the one who has all the authority, but he doesn't wield his authority in judgment or condemnation. He wields it in love and sacrifice and restoration. And so you even see, you know, Jesus says, I have all authority. Mm-hmm. He has authority mm-hmm. over the darkness. He's mm-hmm. just risen from the dead. And, uh, you know, some of our curriculum team, we did some extensive research on mm-hmm. the word all. And, uh, you know, in, in your curriculum guide, it says this, but it really does mean all authority. Mm-hmm. It really does mean Jesus has all authority over heaven and earth. And so we can lean into his power and we're not being sent out to go solve something. And Jesus is like, well, I hope you figure it out. I hope you have the victory. Mm-hmm. Jesus is saying, I have the victory. Let's go. Follow me. We're going into the world. We're going to spread love. We're going to share the good news of what I have done. I've conquered the grave. I've given you life. We're moving towards a beautiful destination. There is no power out in the world or in my own heart in which Jesus doesn't have the authority and the ability yeah. to save and to heal. Well, I hope this conversation has been good for you all. I hope it leads to great conversations in your all's groups and not just conversations that are fun, but conversations that are life-forming as we seek to be apprentices, as we seek to be disciples of Jesus. So until next week. 